me to be able to stand before you and open up the Word of God. And I would invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 8 as we continue our study going verse by verse through this wonderful gospel of Matthew. While you're turning there, it's such a joy to see Joel and Bethany. We've been praying for you all. We love you and it's good to see you again. Matthew chapter 8, I hope you're enjoying this study as much as I am as we endeavor to understand more of who our Lord Jesus was and is. And this morning we will look specifically at the issue of the power and the authority of Jesus. May I remind you that in chapters 8 and 9, Matthew records a series of nine miracles that the Lord performed out of many thousands they, they are through three groups of three. Try saying that fast three times. Three groups of three. And today we will be examining the first two miracles of the second triad. Before we look at the text, may I say that it is it is sad in many circles today. When you talk about Jesus, people see him only in his humiliation. Few people understand him in his glorification. As you think about it, and as we read Scripture, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ was the creator and is the sustainer of the universe. We are told in John 1, 3, that through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. We can read in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 that he is the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. Indeed, every atom in the universe was created by him and he holds them all together. Think of it, dear friends. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one that maintains the gravitation that is necessary to keep the solar system in its orbit. It is the Lord Jesus Christ that causes the earth to spin on its axis at a thousand miles an hour at the equator. It is the Lord that allows us to travel in a 580 million mile orbit around the sun at about the speed of 1,000 miles per minute. This was the babe in the manger. Going from the macro to the micro, we can look at the Creator God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has made, for example, bacteria. When you think of bacteria, we all kind of wrinkle up our nose, but they do serve a purpose. And you think of bacteria such as salmonella or streptococci. Do uh, you realize that because of the Lord's creative and sustaining power, that they can propel themselves through liquid at the equivalent of a car traveling 150 miles per hour? They have little miniature motors that God made on them. As we study bacteria, we realize that motors on these little bacteria rotate up to 100,000 revolutions per minute. They operate through electrical charges from a flow of protons. And on the back of bacteria, you can see that they have a, a shaft that rotates a bundle of whip-like flagella that acts as a propeller. And these motors have intricate sensors and, and mechanisms that allow them to start and stop and go sideways in reverse directions instantly. 
And eight million of these motors would fit in the circular cross section of the human hair. Beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ made these things. And it's interesting, is it not, that evolutionists will tell us that bacteria were one of the first forms of life to evolve because they are so simple. Jesus, our creator and our sustainer, has made every human being with such staggering complexity that the scientists are even now beginning to just unveil the very surface of how we're made. I was reading that we have 100 trillion cells in the human body that the Lord Jesus has made and that he sustains. 46 segments of DNA are found in most cells. You have 23 from your mother, 23 from your father. That determines everything about us. And if the DNA in one of your cells were to be uncoiled and connected and stretched out, it would be about seven feet long. And it would have enough information to fill a library of about 4,000 books. Now, mind you, that was just the DNA in one cell of the 100 100 trillion cells. In fact, if the DNA of your whole body were to be stretched out and placed end to end, they tell us, and I'm always fascinated with scientists that figure these things out, that it would reach from here to the moon more than 500,000 times. Indeed, as the psalmist has said in Psalm 139, verse 14, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. They tell us that all of our DNA would fill books enough to fill the Grand Canyon 75 times. Well, my point is simply this, beloved, that this same Jesus that had that has made us and sustains us is also the one who came and died for us. Now, that's a staggering thought so that we could be reconciled to God. What a glorious thought to think that at his second coming, he will come and he will renovate the earth returning it back to Edenic splendor. And after the millennial reign, he will recreate the, the heavens and the earth, give us a new heaven, a new in kind. The original language tells us something different than we can even imagine today. And ultimately, he will redeem all of creation for all of eternity. This is the Lord Jesus that we love and serve. This is our Savior, our Lord, our advocate, who now sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes on our behalf. And this is the Jesus that we read about today. And I want you to think of these things as we examine more of his power and his authority as we look at some of his miracles. And remember now, his miracles were performed by himself and by the apostles to validate both the message and the messenger, to authenticate who he was. And that's why we no longer see men performing miracles like these today. And we've gone into that in great detail So I will not reiterate that, but you understand that that what you see today is nothing more than the sleight of hand or in some cases, uh, demonic powers causing certain things to happen. But in the most for the most part, it's just phony baloney. Let's look at the first power that we see here today of the Lord Jesus, his power over nature. We see that in verse twenty three. Let me read this little section through verse 27. 
And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm in the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he himself was asleep and they came to him and awoke him, saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you timid, you men of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And the men marveled, saying, What kind of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Here we see Jesus escaping from the multitudes, the many superficial followers that even like today follow him to see what they can get out of him. And he gets into a fishing boat. I'm sure he was exhausted as we read the context in this gospel and others. He gets into a fishing boat to find some seclusion and to go across to the other side here on the Sea of Galilee. Now keep in mind, the Sea of Galilee is about 600 feet below sea level. And to the north rises about 9,600 feet Mount Hermon, towering over the sea. For those of us that have been there, we can see this. It's a, quite a sight. And because of the landscape, because of the topography, Many times strong northerly winds can suddenly come down off of Mount Hermon. And when it when that happens, it will descend upon the warm air in the Galilee Basin and get trapped in the cliffs that are on the eastern side of the of the Sea of Galilee there. And it will produce violent winds that will turn the waters into a furious tempest. Well, this is what happened here. And we see that a great storm arose. The Greek term for storm is seismos. We get our word um, seismograph or seismic from that. It means a shaking. So, so there was a shaking here, an apt description of the violent turbulence of the waters. Mark's gospel adds in chapter 4, verse 37, that the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Can you imagine that scene? Imagine the terror of the disciples, the horror of helplessness in such a storm. And yet Jesus, the creator and sustainer of the universe, in his humanity, is sound asleep in the boat. Asleep in his humanity, dear friends, but wide awake in his deity. He knew exactly what was occurring. In fact, he had orchestrated it. The one who never sleeps nor slumbers deliberately brought these men to a place that we all despise. That place of utter helplessness. Where in desperation and in disbelief and in confusion and many times in despair, we don't know where to turn. But this is exactly where the Lord loves to take us so many times so that he can prove himself powerful on our behalf. The Lord loves to take us as he did his disciples in the boat to a place where we have nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. We're all out of our own human solutions. Yet we know that when we are weak, he is strong and often God takes us into the valley of the shadow of death. But when he does so, we fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. So they awoke him in their fear, saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. 
Once again, another perfect illustration of a sinner's cry for salvation. And we see this motif so much in the narrative of of what happens with the Lord in dealing with the various people and the various events and his miracles. Mark's gospel adds something more in chapter four, verse eight. Mark says that they said, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? There we read not uh, not so veiled accusation of divine indifference. It's as if they were saying, Lord, don't you care what happens to us? Don't we matter to you? Beloved, inevitably, fear and frustration with God will betray a heart that has a superficial understanding of his character. We've all been guilty of this. God, why are you so insensitive to my needs? Can't you see the storm? Why do you seem to be so indifferent? Can't you see I need your help? Versus, God, I am in a desperate way right now. And I know that you know that I am. But I also know that you care, that you're intimately involved, because you have said in your word in Psalm 139.9, For if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. So God, now I cry out to you for help. But even if you choose to let me perish, it will be well with my soul, because I will trust in your purposes. And I will remain steadfast in your love and in your care, come what may. Well, obviously, that was not what was going on in the hearts of the disciples. And so knowing their hearts, the Lord lovingly rebukes them for their weak faith. And he said to them, why are you timid? Literally, why are you fearful? Why are you cowardly? You men of little faith. It's It's as if the Lord was saying, you've seen all the miracles that I have done. You've been with me. You've seen the demonstration of my power and my authority. You've seen my divine love, my mercy, my tender compassion. And do you think that now I'm just going to ignore you? And not only that, even if I were to let you drown in the sea, you would merely pass through the veil instantly, leave this wicked world and enter into paradise. Don't you remember the words of the psalmist? Perhaps the Lord was thinking in Psalm 89 where you disciples have read, oh, Lord God of hosts, who is like thee, almighty Lord? Thy waves arise, thou dost still them. Are those words now meaningless to you, disciples? What about the psalm that you have sung in past days? Psalm 46, beginning in verse 1, where you sang, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth would change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Are those words now meaningless to you? Perhaps the Lord reminded them of Psalm 107, a psalm that has become increasingly meaningful to my father, who, as many of you know, was one of the few survivors on the USS Indianapolis In World War II, where as a young Marine, he swam with other sailors for four and a half days in shark-infested waters. The greatest naval catastrophe in the history of the U.S. Navy. 
And in that psalm we read, those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. For He spoke and raised up a stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They arose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And He brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet. So He guided them to their desired haven. Disciples, do you not remember reading this, you men of little faith? Beloved, no matter how violent the storm in our life, Jesus will answer your cry. He will deliver you from your distress in His own way, in His own time. You see, the issue is not the size of the storm. The issue is not that somehow God is indifferent or, is his, or, or that He's deaf. The issue is not the degree of His power. The issue is the humility of your faith. God, whether you save me or not, I will trust in you. I want to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember the story? They refused to bow to worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had put up. And in his rage, he said, let's cast them into this, this burning furnace. And we'll see if their God will deliver them. And remember their response in Daniel 3. They said, if it be so. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But even if He does not, let it be known to you, O King, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. O child of God, as children of our Heavenly Father, we have nothing to be afraid of. Least of all, death. For to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But notice the amazing power and authority of Jesus in verse 26. It says, then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea and it became perfectly calm. Mark's gospel says in chapter 4, verse 39, that he said, hush, be still. And the winds and the waves obeyed his voice. Dear unsaved skeptic, if you're within the sound of my voice this morning, please know that this same Jesus who had power over disease, this Jesus who had power over demons and has power over nature, who also has power over death, also has the power to forgive sins and to grant eternal life as well as eternal damnation. And dear Christian, the miracle that we read about here is yet another foretaste of the coming kingdom, is it not? A preview of coming attractions for the redeemed. Where there will be a day where there's no sickness in the millennial kingdom. Remember that? There will be no demons, no uninhabitable places, no violent storms. May I remind you of your eschatology here for a moment. After the tribulation, the Lord will come his second time and he will overthrow the Antichrist and the false prophet and the... The removal of Satan will occur. He will remove him and his minions from the earth. And Jesus will renovate the earth. He will establish his millennial kingdom. He will then fulfill his covenantal promises to Israel and restore them back to the land that they forfeited through their disobedience. We read about that in 
Isaiah 66 and Ezekiel 37 and Zechariah 8. And because of their disobedience, you know, they were temporarily put aside and they still have a temporary blindness on them even to this day in the church age. But someday they will again be awakened through repentance to enter into the land of blessing. Jeremiah 31 tells us Ezekiel 36, Romans 11. And then the kingdom will be inaugurated as the king of kings and lord of lords establishes his throne upon the earth, a new renovated earth for a thousand years. And that kingdom will be characterized by harmony and justice, peace, righteousness, a long life. And at the end of that time, he will allow Satan to be released for a very short period of time, followed by a quick judgment of Satan and his minions and all that were following him at the close of the kingdom. And then there will be a new heaven and a new earth, the great white throne judgment and the eternal state will begin. What a marvelous picture we see here in this miracle of God's mercy and his grace, his power and his authority. And beloved, please hear this. Oh, how God loves the cry of human desperation. Even as a father or a mother would love to hear the cry of a child that is in need. And because of his great love and his mercy and his tender compassion, he will instantly rush to save, to deliver, to redeem, to comfort, to encourage. Oh, child of God, may I remind you that the Lord calls storms into existence in our lives so that he can reveal himself to us. Think about it. Was it not in some violent tempest that once upon a time you cried out in salvation? Or cried out for salvation? And how often he initiates his elective purposes to save some soul when that soul is utterly consumed with trouble. He says in Isaiah 48, verse 10, Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. And we all know what it's like to be in the crucible of grace. And if you don't, someday you will. Charles Spurgeon has said it so well. It is when we are down to the very lowest, he says, when we are brought to the bankruptcy and beggary spiritually, when we lie at Christ's feet as though we were dead. It is then he puts his hand upon us and says, fear not, I am the first and the last. He goes on to say in his old English way, it is then he anoints us with the oil of joy. It is then he clothes us with the garments of salvation it is then we hear the voice of eternal love saying, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn thee. Indeed, dear friends, this is the marvelous love of the Savior to meet us at the point of our desperation. And with his infinite power and his authority, he will do precisely what should be done for his glory and for our ultimate joy. Notice the response of the disciples, verse 27. The men were amazed and said, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Mark chapter 4, verse 41 adds that they were also very much afraid. They were terrorized. Now, they were not so much afraid of the storm that was now gone. But now they were terrified to see the power and the authority of God himself. 
a fear that made their former fears beg for language. Dear friends, the majesty and glory of Christ should produce a holy awe in all of us. A reverential awe that forces us to fall on our faces humbly before the Lord in worship. And to do so even silently, only to slowly arise with a song of praise that flows out of a heart that is filled with doxologies, adoring the Lord Jesus for what he has done. This is the heart of genuine worship. It always begins with a fear of who God is because we understand his character and we are overwhelmed by it. Such must have been the inspiration of Charles Wesley when he wrote that great hymn. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. And then in verse Three, he goes on and he says, Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease. Tis music in the sinner's ears. Tis life and health and peace. So again, Jesus proves his deity by demonstrating his power and his authority over nature. And next he does so again, proving his power and his authority over Satan and his minions. Notice in verse 28. And when he had come to the other side, into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so exceedingly violent that no one could pass by that road. And behold, they cried out, saying, What do we have to do with you, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, there was at a distance from them a herd of many swine feeding. And the demons began to entreat, entreat him, saying, If you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Be gone. And they came out and went into the swine. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank and the, into the sea and perished in the waters. And the herdsmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including the incident of the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they entreated him to depart from their region. Ephesians chapter 6, among other passages, tells us that Satan and his forces are organized into ranks. We read there that they are divided, divided into rulers and powers, world forces of this darkness and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, this strata is not fully explained in Scripture. However, we can surmise from Scripture that certain demons rule over certain kingdoms and have great influence over monarchs, kings, presidents and so on. Demons, as we read Scripture, have been known to gain control of non-believers for reasons that we don't fully understand. Certainly, we see it in Scripture as well as beyond Scripture, where people that dabble in the occult or wallow in the wickedness of demonic strongholds, where evil is exalted, such as the rock music culture and places of drugs and prostitution and homosexuality, those types of things, we see there very strong demonic control and individuals. It's interesting in my 
when I was uh, in my doctoral studies in psychology before I moved away into theology, it was fascinating how many of the psychologists were trying to figure out if there might be some merit to this whole Bible demon thing. And they never could figure it out because certainly they don't understand the word. But we have seen this throughout history, and certainly this is an example of it. Having lived on an Indian reservation, um, I know what it's like to see people, be around people that worship animals, animist religious uh, experience that they have. I have experienced firsthand numerous, numerous experiences with demonized individuals. For the most part, they will stay clear of Christians. But if they are cornered in conversation or in some confrontation, the results are always in enormous conflict. Many times bizarre behaviors will be seen. You'll see extreme physical power, sometimes strong odors, various kinds of paranormal activities. We've seen pans flying across the rooms and doors opening and shut. And talking with some of these people, you will hear hideous growlings and strange voices that will come out of an individual. Sometimes, for example, a man's voice coming out of a little petite woman and so on. I noticed the other day on National Geographic Explorer, they had an expose on the practice of voodoo, which is a religion of many of the people in the Caribbean islands, in the West African people. It's a polytheistic religion derived primarily from African cult worship, which, by the way, is a mixture of animism and Roman Catholicism, which is a fascinating thought in and of itself. But. The Bible calls it sorcery. It is an abomination. They will have bizarre rituals, and it was fascinating to see it on television. They would go into trances, and they would have blood sacrifices of animals, self-mutilation, visions. And they would get in touch with various spirits. And you would always know that happened because whenever they did so, they would begin to speak in tongues. The ecstatic utterances of glossolalia. By the way, undeniable parallels here that you would find in various forms of Pentecostal worship. And voodoo, to many people, is simply considered becoming in touch with the gods, which really what they're becoming in touch with or coming in touch with is demonic forces. And sad to see a level of spiritual deception like this. But we also see severe demonic possession in more civilized countries, but when you ever you see it, these people are not allowed to roam around in tombs and terrorize people, but they are institutionalized, typically diagnosed with some mental illness. And we know biblically that Satan can attack men spiritually, mentally, physically. It will result in immorality, violence, insanity, masochism, murder, suicide, and every conceivable form of wickedness. The Bible teaches us that demons are not limited to time, these fallen angels. They're not limited to space or form. They will have superior strength and they will have superior intelligence, especially with respect to theology as well as anthropology. They know much more about human beings than we tend to know so that they can amass their supernatural powers to somehow tempt us and thwart the purposes of God. We also know that they will have supernatural powers to perform signs 
and false wonders. And we see even that today at times. But by far, and I want you to catch this, but by far the greatest and most formidable method that Satan uses, as well as his forces, to, to thwart the purposes of God is through the clever orchestration of temptations that will appeal to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the boastful pride of life, and the dissemination of false doctrine. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4, Verse one and two, but the spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. The Greek grammar would indicate that these demons are literally working through human individuals to propagate deception. Religious and spiritual deception. In 2 Corinthians 10, we read of demonic fortresses where people are imprisoned in religious deceptions. We read there of what is called speculations and lofty things raised up against the knowledge of God. This, of course, would refer to the proud intellectualism of human wisdom that is hostile to divine truth. Today, we would know it as political correctness or religious correctness, and so on. And certainly the father of lies is a master at spiritual counterfeit. He is a genius at deception. And that's why we're told in Ephesians 6.13 to wear the whole armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, to stand firm. It's important for you to remember, dear friends, that in 2 Timothy 10, the weaponry that we have, the divine weaponry that we have against Satan and his forces are really twofold. The word and prayer, the word and prayer. That's why in verse five of 2 Corinthians 10, we are told to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Friends, we assault the systems, not the spirits. There's no such thing in Scripture where we read that we are to be binding demons or binding Satan or rebuking Satan or having um, exorcisms or mystical incantations, writing letters to Satan, none of that stuff. You resist the devil and he will flee from you. You take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and you have nothing to fear. But all of this to say that in Jesus' day, these things were occurring but also, there were frequent occasions that we read about in the gospel accounts where Jesus encountered individuals such as these men that were under the direct and obvious control of evil spirits. And what's interesting is whenever he confronted these things, these people, the demons that were inhabiting these people would always quickly recognize him as God. And also we see that they were also always terrified at his presence and they would beg for mercy. They didn't want to be thrown into the pit. And Jesus would instantly command them with irresistible power and they would immediately obey. Now, this, of course, was one of his primary purposes in his atoning work, namely to defeat Satan and his forces. We read that in 1 John 3, 8, where we find that the Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now, again, remember that ultimately after the millennial kingdom, Satan and his demons will be, according to Revelation 20, cast into the lake of fire where they will be tormented 
day and night forever and ever. But in this case that we read before us, there were two men who were demon possessed. Mark's gospel says that when they approached him, Jesus asked one of the men his name. And the man says in Mark 5, 9, the demon responded through the man's mouth saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. So there must have been many demons in even this one man. Well, as we read in this text, these men were terrorizing the surrounding area. They were so violent that people were afraid to pass by the road. So there was a real problem here. Mark and Luke also indicate in their gospel that these men wore no clothes. So they're running around naked to make it all the worse. And they also tell us that they possessed great strength, that chains were unable to hold them. And one of the men, at least, was often driven into the, le- into the desert, we're told, and spent, spent much time crying out and gashing himself with stones. And, of course, we also read in Matthew's gospel that these men were living amongst the tombs. By the way, this is always indicative of demonism's obsession with violence and death. By the way, this is commonly exalted in horror movies, which are an abomination to the Lord and should be avoided at all costs by Christian people. We should never exalt such wickedness, such violence in the kingdom of of darkness and Satan. So they see the Lord coming. And what's interesting is they recognize him as one of the members of the triune Godhead. And they cry out, what do we have to do with you, son of God? Mark and Luke's gospel say that they said, son of the most high God. In fact, in Mark 5, 6, we read that one of the men, Mark adds, ran up and bowed down before him. Isn't that interesting? Proskenuo in the Greek, which literally is translated as as the word worship. So an act of reverence, an act of, of, of fear, of awe. Now, friends, don't get confused here. Satan and his demons utterly despise God and they are not worshiping and exalting him, but they know that they are powerless against him. They are completely at his mercy. And again, we see a glimpse of the future when one day every created being, both angelic and human, will stand in his presence and at his name, according to Philippians 2.10, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. In verse 29, we go on to see that they say, what do we have to do with you, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Here's a fascinating statement. Clearly, these demons are excellent Bible scholars. By the way, James 2.19 tells us that the demons also believe and shudder. They know Christ. They know the gospel. They understand the plan of redemption and they hate it. They know who Jesus is. They know the inevitability of hell for those who reject Christ. They even know their own destiny. They understand eschatology or the study of the end time things. They know that when the millennial reign is complete, that they, along with all who oppose the gospel of Christ, will be cast into an eternal hell. They understand that. So they're asking Jesus in utter terror, Jesus, have you changed your mind? Are are you changing your schedule for our eternal torment to begin? By the way, a common question arises at this point. Some will ask, 
Pastor, if, if Satan and, and demons know the inevitability of their fate, then why do they continue to oppose God? Well, that's a fair question, but the answer is really quite simple. It's because they can do no other. You see, evil will hate God regardless of truth. Wicked creatures, whether man or demon, will oppose God even in the face of undeniable futility. This has always been true. Romans 1 tells us that that even sinful man suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, that they love they love their sin more than they love God. And yet they are without excuse because of reason and because of conscience. You see, friends, apart from divine regeneration, the nature of a man or even the, the, the nature of a demon will always act consistently with its sinfulness, even though. It may know full well the inevitable consequences of behavior of its behavior. Beloved, sin is by nature both irrational and evil. If you've ever been around it, and well, we all have, but sometimes you can see that the things that people do, it's not only sinful, it's stupid. It's destroying them, and they continue to do it. And here we have just another example of the astounding insanity of rebellion against God. I think it was Luther that said that Satan is God's ape. In other words, God allows and even commands Satan and his demons to operate upon the world and even in the heavens to accomplish his glorious purposes, which somehow and will ultimately be revealed in his divine wrath and his power when he subdues all things and regains his rightful throne that he allowed Satan to usurp at the fall. Well, these are the inscrutable mysteries of God, are they not? We cannot fully understand, but we quietly accept them, trusting in his utter holiness, his justice, and his sovereignty. Now back to the text. He says, if you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine, verse 31. In other words, Jesus, here's an alternative. If we don't have to go to the pit right now, because after all, it's not time. Then how about these swine? By the way, Mark's gospel tells us there were 2000 of them. Now, folks, if you've ever been around pigs, I mean, you can put one pig on an acre of ground and that pig will absolutely destroy that acre in a matter of days. We're talking 2000 pigs. Can you imagine the smell? Can you imagine the ecological damage to the land in that area? By the way, they were also unclean animals to the Jews, even though there were many Gentiles living in this area. And no doubt, because of the, the size of such a herd, this was a major part of that economy. And it's interesting for you to keep in mind, you'll understand in a moment, that this was six miles across from Capernaum, or down the waterway from Capernaum. By the way, you go there today and you can see where the pigs ran into the water. The, the landscape is very clear. Now, we're not told why the demons chose the swine or why Jesus agreed to it. Perhaps he wanted to make a statement by destroying a major part of that economy, by somehow getting rid of these pigs that were having such an enormous impact on both the land and the air with the smell. But regardless of the reason, I want you to notice again the power and the authority of Jesus. In verse 32, he says, be gone. And a legion of demons entered the swine, and the whole herd rushed over the cliffs into the water. 
Now, friends, think of that. Now even the water is contaminated. Two thousand pigs in this large lake, about 11 miles by 30 miles. What an environmental nightmare. Imagine the impact. Virtually everyone that lived around the Sea of Galilee would have been impacted with this. Enormous pollution that the power and the authority of the Lord Jesus caused in the land. Notice the response of the people. Verse 34, they entreated him to depart from their region. By the way, it's interesting, again, in Luke's gospel in chapter 8, verse 35, we read that one of the men was now clothed and sat in his right mind at Jesus' feet. So when the people came from the town out to where all of this happened, here they see this guy in his right mind, clothed, sitting at the feet of Jesus. Well, why such a response by the people? Well, the scriptures don't say. Let me tell you some of my thoughts. Certainly some of it could be that they're angry over the loss of the pigs. It would have been a devastating blow to the economy of the area. Maybe it was the fear of somehow suddenly being around such supernatural power and authority that many times can be terrifying as we read through Scripture. But I believe that probably the reason these people asked Jesus to leave was because of Jesus' power and authority over the demons, causing them to think that somehow, because of his power, he was in collusion with Satan himself. Let me tell you why I think that. The Jews tried unsuccessfully in that day to exercise demons through various rituals and formulas. And they were astounded when they saw Jesus dealing with them the way he would do. Later on, we read in Mark 127 that the Jews at Capernaum, just up the water there, about six miles. Here's what they said. What is this? A new teaching with authority? This Jesus commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And in Luke 11, verse 15, we read that the Jews were saying he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons, implying, therefore, that he must be a demon himself. Well, friends, regardless of the reason for the rejection of Jesus, the Lord was merciful to them. We always see the Lord's mercy and his grace. The reason I say that is because, again, in Mark's gospel, we read that one of these men begged Jesus to allow him to accompany him. He was so grateful for the saving truth of the gospel and for being being freed from the demons. But yet we read that Jesus had a greater plan for this man. And he told him in Mark 5, verse 19, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you. And how he had mercy on you. In other words, go be a missionary. Go back to your own people. Friends, once again, don't you see it? What a marvelous picture of salvation. One who was utterly dominated by Satan. One who was, who, who was in bondage to sin and to the kingdom of darkness. Is, has now been miraculously delivered by the power and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then commissioned. To go tell others of the undeserved grace and mercy that he has experienced. 
Well, I pray that the glorious truths that we've examined here this morning will ignite our hearts also to praise and motivate each of us to faithful obedience and service to the one who has delivered us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for the power of your word and the clarity of your word that speaks to our souls. Lord, I pray that these truths will find a place in our hearts. That the seeds of divine revelation will begin to grow and will bear much fruit for your glory and for our joy. And Lord, if there be one here today that knows nothing of you as Savior, maybe they've been like so many of the people that followed you in that day, just superficial followers, caught up in churchianity. They've entered through the wide gate, traveling down the broad way, not knowing that ultimately they will end up apart from you. Lord, I pray if there be one like that here today, oh, Spirit of God, speak to their hearts. Bring conviction to them that they might come to a saving knowledge of Christ this day. I pray all of this in Jesus' name and for His glorious sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.